Good morning, everyone. Uh, today is Saturday, May 21. We have a terrific room in store for you. We have Dr. Anasa Haji. He'll be speaking on the energy markets. And we'll get to uh, Dr. Haji very shortly. Just a couple of words. Um, you know, every day, every week, it's another surprise, another misadventure. And I say to everyone, I keep saying, expect the unexpected. I used a line the other day, which someone uh, seized upon and tweeted out, and that is, whatever you're doing, do less of it. Because the uncertainty is just paramount. And anybody who claims they know what's going on or what's going to happen is a fool or a liar. I have my own opinions, and I share those with you with all the disclaimers that um, are necessary. I'm just amazed at, despite the carnage we've seen in markets, what I would describe as the relative complacency that is out there. And before people get all in a tizzy, citing sentiment data, instead, I would rather people focus on what investors are doing, not what they're saying. The commitment of traders data Last week, I didn't see the number. The numbers from yesterday showed net long position among speculators for both S and P and Nasdaq futures at multi-month highs. Everywhere I turn, people are asking, "Is it time to buy? Is this the bottom?" One point three trillion dollars flowed into equities last year. Retail has sold only about $40 million so far. Kathy Wood has taken in over a billion dollars this year, despite losing 70% of, her, of shareholders' money. And Dr. Ahaji, one of the things we're going to talk about, which is remarkable, speaking about the oil stocks, um, it's just extraordinary how, if you look at the triple Q and ARC, the billions that have flown in, and conversely, I think on balance, flows into energy. I saw a number the other day. It said minus 23 million this year. Let's just call it flat. <laughs> they have the best performing sector in the whole market. Nobody's believing it. Yet, Kathy Wood has incinerated her investors' funds, and they're pouring, pouring money in. I mean, these are, these, are, these are not things that you see at a bottom. I think we have a long way to go in this bear market. As the great Michael Kantrowitz uh, has said many a time, and I hope Michael drops in the room this morning. He's the best strategist on the street, in my opinion. We're looking at a two-stage bear market. The first stage comes about through multiple compression, owing to rising bond yields and expanding credit spreads. Has nothing to do with the recession. The second part of the bear market, which I think we're now entering, has to do with significant earnings, a significant economic slowdown, if not outright recession. Bottom line is a huge earnings recession, big contraction in earnings. And the market has just begun to figure that out. We had the disastrous figures from various uh, retail companies this past week. The consumers in, in, is getting absolutely crucified with declining real incomes owing to increasing energy prices and food prices. So I think it's got a long way to go. My friend Shrub, who I see is in the room, 
Um, I want him to speak about it. I really enjoyed his uh, Twitter feed this week. He had a couple tweets about um, the element of time. And I'll quote from one of them, from the S&P in 2000 down 10, in 2001 down 13, in 2002, 23%. And I quote from Shrub, I'll make it clear, the 2000 bear market lasted three years, with the worst year being year three. Long protracted pain, or as Jim Cramer would say, house of pain. This is a we, th- this journey has just gotten started, and I know it's hard to have that perspective because we've been in a protracted bull run, underwritten by the most reckless monetary policy in history, and it's only human nature you get conditioned by what you see. But as Shrub points out in this tweet from a couple days ago. Kiss, keep a simple shrub. You need to be looking at three to five year charts, not 12 month charts. It's obvious it's a bear market and liquidity is gone. Summer's around the corner and it'll get worse, except for those in cash. I think people are people are, are wise to the fact that something is wrong. It's not playing out exactly how the talking head said it was going to play out. The investment banks are no use. They're shilling their deals. The investment advisors, to a large extent, the fidelities and vanguards of the world, they want you to keep your hands tied to the mast of uh, you know dollar cost averaging the 60-40 model. 60-40 model is dead, along with the 60-40 model. And the objections I hear when I say to people, sell is not a four-letter word, they'll say things such things like, well, if I sell now, I'm going to have to pay taxes. Well, let's assume they have some gains. Or if I sell now, uh, then I have to figure out when to get back in. So, you know, I I have to, there's no point selling. Or my favorite one, if I sell now, it's going to mess up my asset allocation decision. They've been sold a bill of goods. Yes, it is true that over the decades, stocks outperform other asset classes. But it is also true that if you bought the market in 2000, I think the old NASDAQ, it took, I don't know, was it 16 years to get back to break even or some crazy number like that? As opposed to if you bought the market in March of 2009, you earned five years worth of performance in like two years. So timing does matter. I'm not saying it's easy to call the market, but what you pay in terms of valuation will, over the longer term, determine your returns. And when you stop to consider that valuations, you know, not only have they compressed, PE's gone from whatever, 20 some odd times to 17 times. And I think likely to go lower as the economy slows, recession comes, and credit spreads widen. So not only is going to contract, but earnings estimates are too high. The consensus number of 250 for next year is too high. So napkin math, People a few months ago were saying, well, 2023, 18 times 250 is 4,500 on the S&P. I mean, this is a bad way to make the point, but I'll make it anyway. And now if you say, okay, George, well, let's just take the P down to 14 or 15 and put a 200 or $210 number on earnings for 2023, that gives you a 3,000 S&P. We're at 3,900 right now. It's a long way to go. And importantly, certain stocks are going to go down a lot more than that because of their high beta nature. I normally don't talk about individual names. I have in recent weeks a few. I think it's much more important to get the uh, uh, sector right, the factor rotation right. 
individual stock selection is not so important. But two stocks deserve special mention. I'm going to mention them only because the great Michael Belkin and the great Albert Saporta, who have been in these rooms two or three times in the last few weeks, nailed it. And I think, in particular, the electric car company that shall not be named, which I'm now going to name, Tesla, game over. Game over. And it's kind of funny why it's happening now. Forget about the fact the stock's way overvalued and the fundamentals are falling apart. So you'd say, so what's new, George? All the extraneous stuff, Elon's personal uh, behavior, his politics. He was loved by the woke left because he's, you know, he's cool, it's green cars, he's a liberal, all that kind of stuff. Well, now people are taking odds with him. His minions have turned on him because he, I think he's becoming a Republican or something to that effect. Not a good way, not a good move, not a shrewd move here when you alienate most of your customer base. And then there was this incident where I guess he exposed himself um, in front of a woman recently. That's also not a cool move. So his folks, his wokeness, they're deserting him. Importantly, getting away from the uh, narrative, there's a narrative in stock, but if anyone cares about the numbers, I haven't updated them. Um, I, c- I can easily do so. But I think they're going to do, what is it, 70 billion in revenues or something like this year? And the thing's got a $700 billion market cap, roughly. It's on 10 times sales. Typical auto stock sells on maybe 0.6 sales, 0.5 sales. So you get the idea. Um, the stock could easily go to 100, easily. And I said a few weeks ago, I, I'd take the under on, I think it was 500 or 400. We're down to whatever we are, 660 today or something like that. People are going to be shocked how fast the stock goes down. It's going to get Netflix. And the other name I'm going to mention is Apple, which the great Albert supported, highlighted, and went through the numbers, pointing out a few weeks ago how the incredible, the, the, the huge performance of Apple these last few years. And don't get me wrong, it's a great company, but it was all due to multiple expansion. If you look at the stock on PE or EV to sales, it was all due to valuation expansion. As a matter of fact, the profit margins of Apple have been flat for the last umpteen years. So for all this talk about healthcare devices and software and services, margins they haven't gone up at all. It's a story. It's just that. It's a story. And so you look at Apple now. I think it went out at 138 yesterday or something like that. And I was saying um, you know, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the stock in the 160s. And I don't, I'm not coming across it, and I told you so. But I think then it was on, I don't know, 26 times the number. Now it's maybe on 22 times the estimate. You know, for companies, revenues are growing at 8%. So, you know, and that's before you get the blow up, which is going to happen um, coming out of Asia. As someone tweeted out the other day, the dumb phone orders or smartphone orders, as they're called, as more appropriately known, they're down 20%. Warren Buffett's got over half his portfolio in this stock. The market always has a way of coming free when that happens. And everyone I talk to is, oh, it's Apple, it's Apple. So in any event, I, I, and the chart's breaking down. Forget about the narrative. The chart's breaking down. The chart's breaking down on Tesla, too. The relative performance. So I, I think those two stocks are particularly timely. Again, this is not investment advice. Do your own work. It's my opinion. I've been wrong more than anybody else in this room because I've been at this longer than anybody else. I make plenty of mistakes. And for my 60% of the time, I'm going to doing, doing a good job. My conviction you know, level comes and goes depending on the situation. I have a very high degree of conviction in these two names. But again, 
If you make money shorting these stocks, it's on you. If you lose money shorting these stocks, it's on you. I'm not responsible. All right, so let's go to today's guest, um, Dr. Anas Alhaji, who is no stranger um, to these rooms. Um, he's a friend of the Canadian oil mafia. He's one of the foremost experts on all things energy. Um, he has written uh, over a thousand articles and papers and columns. He's an advisor to governments globally. Um, I, I, it's such a pleasure to listen to him speak on energy because uh, he has the facts. Um, he's widely recognized globally as one of the leading experts in energy. And I think we're very fortunate that Dr. Alhaji has uh, been willing to um, come into the room today to share his thoughts with us. We're, we've, you've heard enough of me. We're really here to listen to Dr. Alhaji speak. Um, and so, Dr. Alhaji, um, maybe if you want to make a few introductory remarks and we can then slide into Q&A, um, however you'd like to proceed, the floor is yours. Um, you and I had an off-channel discussion about topics you'd like to discuss, but I yield the floor to you, sir. So welcome. Good to see you again. Good morning, and uh, thank you very much for uh, inviting me, and thank you for everyone attending this morning. Of course, morning in the United States, I can see some familiar faces from around the world. Uh, thank you all. Uh, so uh, if we look at the medium and long-term uh, outlooks for the energy markets in general and oil uh, in particular, the likelihood of oil shortages are higher than what people think higher than any forecast that exists in the market today. Supply cannot keep up with demand. The decline in investment story that everyone is talking about because of the low prices, the attack on the oil industry, ESG, the uh, International Energy uh, Agency attack on the oil business, the Biden administration, etc. So this decline in investment uh, is only kind of a side story. It's a small story. The biggest story in the oil business today is the sudden rise in demand because of the failure of the climate change policies. That is what not what count, it's not counted for anywhere in any outlook. And when I say the failure here, let me illustrate just a couple of points. Will they succeed on some fronts? Yes. Will they make some advancement? Yes. But we have some serious problems. I'm going to mention a few today that they are not going to achieve their goals. They are not going to be 100%. And if, as long as they go 100%, then the demand for energy will go up. And that demand, that gap is not counted for anywhere. So generally speaking, I'm just saying some general statements here just to uh, start the discussion. Uh, the impact of electric vehicles is over overstated. And here I say the impact. We've seen some charts recently being produced by a certain organization I'm going to name. These, these numbers basically are absolutely uh, not uh, correct for various reasons I'm going to mention later. The impact of carbon neutrality policies by government and companies are overstated. And I'm going to discuss that for those who saw my reply to Elon Musk this uh, front. Uh, the third point is that the future impact of fuel efficiency of vehicles is significantly overstated. And let me uh, make a statement here. 
we look at oil demand up to 2040 or 2045 or 2050, two main reasons for the decline in demand based on those outlooks. One of them is electric vehicles, and the other one is improvement in efficiency. Fuel efficiency of what? Of gasoline and diesel vehicles. So if the same uh, profits of uh, climate change are claiming themselves that we are going to have improvement in fuel efficiency of those cars until two decades and three decades from now, that means those who are talking about the end of the ICE vehicles is a complete nonsense because the prophets themselves are telling us they will stay with us and they will be, with their efficiency will be improved. And I will talk about some issues related to that later on. What people do not know is this. And if you come out of this space today with this king alone, that's good enough for me. People do not realize that if you look at the major forecasting agencies, that's the International Energy Agency and OPEC and all the other oil majors. If you look at the International Energy Agency, for example, they have about 30, 31 members. Those 31 members, they submit plans to the International Energy Agency. These plans basically are uh, related to carbon neutrality, climate change policies, etc. If I am an analyst working for this organization, and I don't believe that the UK or France or any other country is going to be successful in their efforts because technically it does not make sense or the money is not there. I cannot say that. Why? Because they are members of my organization and they pay my salary. So I take everything for granted. So in all those outlooks you see around, the assumption is taken that government policies are taken as is and embedded in the outlooks without any evaluation, period. And no one can raise a doubt about it. So that's the first problem here, is that they are taking those numbers from the government and they are uh, uh, including those in the outlooks as is. And we all know there are thousands of books and articles and discussions and TV interviews, etc., by gurus in politics, in economics, by senators, congressmen, in the last hundred years or so, talking about government policy failure. So if we have all those evidence throughout history about government policy failure, why all of a sudden the assumption, when it comes to climate change, we have 100% success? So that's a major issue. The last point in the, introdu in, in the introduction is this, that forecasts of growth in oil supply not match the forecast of petroleum products demanded. For those who are familiar with the oil industry, don't worry much about what I am saying here if I'm using some jargon here. Uh, but the whole idea here is this. If you look at the, so you look at OPEC or you look at the IEA, if you take the, the final numbers in 2045 and you look at the demand for gasoline, diesel, jet fuel, etc., and you say, okay, now I'm going to take them back to crude oil. So I'm going to walk them back. And if you walk them back, you end up with the quality of crude oil that you need to produce them. Now you go to the supply side and look at their forecast 
of crude oil supply, and you can see that they don't match. The crude oil supply forecast will produce qualities that are different from what is predicted on the demand side. And here we have a serious problem. And it's not only a refining problem, it's just a demand uh, problem. This is very important for investors because if you want to invest, you get to know to decide whether you want to invest in Canada because it produces heavy crude, or you want to introduce uh, you want to invest in shale because shale produces very light crude. So the, this one is extremely important in making the decision on where you want to uh, invest. The last comment here is this: I mentioned the major agencies and the forecast. If you look at the forecast, the long-term forecast by the oil majors, for me, every time I see uh, a, an oil forecast or, or long-term forecast by an oil major, I ignore it. And I know many of my followers, they keep uh, kind of sending me those tweets with this fancy charts, old Sarah, look what they said, and this, and some people will argue for them, some people will argue against them. Look. These are useless, and I'll tell you why. Because for major oil companies, they produce about a dozen scenarios. So the research department will produce about a dozen scenarios. Then another committee will meet and decide which scenario will be used for investment. And that will remain secret, period. No one will know. So what Exxon or Chevron or Total or BP is doing or planning to do, no one will know. No company is going to advertise the secrets. And then the same committee or others will decide which scenario will be public. And that scenario that is public most likely is for public relations. So it has a lot of ESG in it, a lot of green energy, a lot of things, etc., etc. So they want to wash your brain with it. They want to wash the brain of politicians with it. But this is really not what is intended. And to check this is very easy. Look at the scenario they advertise and look at their investment behavior. They are going in the opposite direction. Back to you, George. Thanks for that. That's a really provocative uh, introduction. So um, it begs a lot of questions. I'd like to go back a little bit, uh, Dr. Ahaji, just for the listeners in the room who are not you know, fully paid up members of the Canadian oil mafia and um, are not as knowledgeable on these subjects. And without getting it too elementary, if we could just make a very brief review, explain to, uh, please, to the listeners, first, even, uh, you've been masterful in the past with these scenarios, but so everyone says, well, we're going to have green, you know, electric cars, blah, blah, blah. Forget about whether there's enough lithium and all the other stuff to, 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 to enable these predictions. But could you just, first from the demand side, could you, if, I mean, it looks like, I mean, I'm of the belief that oil demand is going to go up for another 12, 15 years, regardless of what happens, because of the increasing demand for the emerging markets, despite what green cars, electric cars may get. So could you just speak a little bit? First, let's deal with the demand side, because many people say well, two things. They say, one, we're going to have more electric cars. It's very simplistic. And therefore, oil demand is going to go down. That's incredibly inaccurate. And then two, they focus a lot too much on the economy. And if I'm not mistaken, oil demand has only gone down three times in the last 50 years. And the real issue is the supply side. So could you speak specifically to the demand outlet going forward for the next, say, 5, 10, 15 years? That would be helpful. Thank you. 
Uh, thank you. Uh, generally speaking, we are heading for an energy crisis simply because the story that everyone knows, we don't have enough investment uh, in the last few years. We have high decline rates in shale, etc. You all know the story. But the story I'm emphasizing on today is that the failure of climate change policies are going to increase the demand for energy uh, and in general, and especially uh, oil uh, and gas. And by the way, this is for everyone. I think natural gas is going to be hotter than oil in the next 30 years. And I would, I would really move some money to gas. And I think gas is going to be the, the major investment. Uh, and I'm going to explain to you, I'm going to show you today why. Uh, the first fact, the first fact is we heard politicians, we heard people on Twitter, we heard all those uh, uh, environmentalists saying we have to go for renewable energy because we want to reduce oil demand. We want to reduce dependence on Saudi Arabia. We want this. We want this. We want this. Nonsense. Why it is nonsense? Because if you look at the major consuming countries that represent more than 80 percent of global oil demand, that's Europe, North America, and uh, uh, India, China, Japan, and North Korea. When we use renewable energy, especially solar and wind, we use them to generate electricity. In the countries I mentioned, oil is rarely used to generate electricity, which means that if they double, triple, quadruple, their capacity of solar and wind, the impact of, on oil or demand for oil is near zero. And any politician who would say that uh, doubling or increasing the, um, the capacity of uh, solar and wind would reduce oil demand, uh, etc., they are lying or they are completely ignorant. If you look at the data today, the demand is close to 100 million barrels a day. Out of this 100 million barrels a day of, of oil demand, and that, of course, includes all, ty all types of oil, not only crude, only about 5 million barrels, only about 5 million barrels are used in power generation. And most of it is outside those countries that I mentioned. And most of it is in oil producing countries themselves because oil is cheap and they have a lot of it. And the idea here is if we look at the next 30 years, how much of this 5 million is going to be replaced? According to OPEC, only 1 million can be replaced. According to my model, about 2 million can be replaced. 2 million over a period of 30 years. That's it. And that's in the power sector. The other three million is engraved in stone. We cannot change it for various uh, uh, reasons. Some of them uh, are geographic, uh, some of them are uh, economic, and some of them uh, are related to history, such as Japan, for example. They have problems in geography, and they have problems with the history of the way they uh, created their own um, power, uh, power system. So where the decline in demand is going to happen is going to come from electric vehicles. Now, we do have uh, the, the transportation in general. Uh, when we look at oil demand, about 50, 55, 56% of oil demand 
million barrels a day is used in the transportation system. And that's everything in the transportation system. So that's uh, planes, ships, uh, cars, trucks, uh, all the uh, agricultural equipment, etc. cetera. Uh, uh, basically the agricultural transportation, not the equipment, sorry. Uh, so 56% and, the, and about 42% of that is the, what we call passenger vehicles. That's where the emphasis is on. Of course, there is emphasis on trucking, but trucking is going nowhere. But on small, in terms of small vehicles, yes, there is an impact there. And uh, if you look at the, at the future and assume that we are going to have a major penetration of electric vehicles and we are going to have hundreds of millions of them on the road, by 2050, by 2050, we need at least 700 million vehicles, 700 million vehicles to keep demand at where it is today. Again, wait, 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 Dr. Algy, hold on, hold on, hold on. Could you just repeat that again? Because that's that's an amazing statement. Could you just slowly repeat that again, please? Yes. So by 2050, we need 700 million, at least 700 million electric vehicles on the road worldwide to keep demand at 100 million barrels a day. Okay. Now, how many vehicles we have today? We have about 25 million. And okay, I know the, the rate of increase is going to be way higher. I know that this is going to happen. But today I'm going to explain things that many people have not heard before. But here is the case for oil. Because I really want people to understand this point, especially those who are not experts or who do not know much about the oil industry. I mentioned that if we end up with a 700 million at least by 2050, the demand for oil in 2050 will be 100 million. The problem is we are in 2022 right now. That 100 million in 2050 has to be all, all of it, fresh oil. Completely because of the decline rate. So this hundred million we are using today is going to die down completely by that time. We need a replacement and we need trillions and trillions of dollars to be able to provide that hundred of million, uh, that hundred million by 2050. Let's go with the others. Let's say, okay, demand is going to decline to 90 million by 2050. That's fine. That 90 has to be fresh oil and we still need trillions of dollars for that. No matter what. The problem is when we look at the efforts that Europe made and all those countries that adopted ESG and carbon neutrality, we know they've been doing this for the last 15 years or so, especially in the last seven years. But look at the numbers and let the numbers speak for them for themselves. They are trying to get rid of fossil fuel. They are trying to get rid of oil. So let's look at the numbers. Today, the Netherlands' dependence on fossil fuel is about 90%. Japan, 88%. The US is 82%. Italy, 80%. Korea, 83%. UK, 78%. Germany, the queen of green, 75%. 
And you go down the line on those things, and you can see they already spent hundreds of billions of dollars, and the level of dependence on fossil fuel is still extremely high. Where the money is going to come from for the replacement of all of that? But notice the following. If we go down the list, by the way, this chart I'm looking at right now is on my website, anasalhaji.com. You just look at it and go down, you'll see the chart. So Belgium, 71%. Denmark, 59%. Now notice this. France, France dependence on fossil fuel is 46%. Norway is 45%. So the question is, why Norway 45%, France is 46%, while everyone else is in the 80s and 90s, mostly? It's not because of solar and, and, and wind. Because France depends on nuclear and Norway depends on hydro. So where is the where the money gone? Where is that the role of solar and wind that's been we've they've been investing hundreds of billions of dollars in? We are not seeing it in the total of numbers. Again, this is total energy in the dependence. So this is not the power sector, to be clear. This is not the power sector. This is total energy. Now, if you look at emerging economies, Russia's dependence on fossil fuel is about eight, uh, about uh, 89%. China, 88%. Turkey, 83%. India, 76%. And look at this. Brazil is only 54%. Why Brazil is low? Because Brazil used uh, uh, biofuel since the 70s. It wasn't solar, it wasn't wind. So even after spending billions of, billions of dollars, hundreds of billions of dollars, their dependence on fossil fuel is still very high. And the story here is when it comes to oil, and that chart, by the way, if you look at it, there, there is a percentage of oil. The average for Europe percentage is above 30% dependence on oil today. So the idea is dependence remains very high and they need to replace that. and. The, the, the effectiveness of the money invested so far is very little. So how they are going to do it by 2050? Now, one of the main issues that people do not pay attention to is this. If you look at the major forecasts, even by oil companies, oil majors, you will see the largest decline in demand to 2040 or 2045 or 2050 is not related to electric vehicles. I'll repeat that again. The major decline in demand in the next 20 to 30 years is not coming from electric vehicles. It is coming from the improvement in the fuel economy of ICE vehicles. That's what they called here in the United States, the CAFE standards and their impact is coming from there. Here's the problem. The low hanging fruit already been achieved in the 80s. And we became innovative in the last 20 years or so where we used uh, higher quality metals that are very light, like when you look at Ford 150, for example. Uh, we try to make the vehicles lighter by adding more plastic to the body, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, we try to make the cars smaller. Uh, we improve, we have some improvement in technology, but the fact is everything peaked. The technology has peaked. We cannot get, we can get lighter metals, but the price of Ford uh, 150 will, will go above 100,000 if you go with lighter metals. So Ford will not do it because of higher cost. And uh, we cannot make cars smaller than our bodies. 
So we maxed out on all of those. Here is the problem. All those forecasts see that demand will decline in the next 25 years between 8 to 12 million barrels a day only because of, of improvement in efficiency. Something did not happen even when we had the low-hanging fruit. Where this efficiency is going to come from, we don't know. It's made up. And the issue is, and, and people do not realize this, that as you know, the, uh, the fleet, the age of the fleet is more than 10 years in the United States and Europe. But if everything is going up with inflation, et cetera, what we are going to see? We are going to see people basically keeping the same cars, the same old cars that are gas guzzlers in a sense relative to what's to come. So let's keep that in mind when we talk about the impact of inflation on the improvement of uh, uh, efficiency. But uh, what they, uh, those forecasts ignored, of course, this 8 to 12 million cannot happen in any way. There are several reasons. One reason is uh, many of you are familiar with the rebound effect. We've seen it. We have enough evidence to show that with cheaper gasoline, cheaper cars, people drove more. End of story. This is just like our homes. We had more energy efficient homes, but they are bigger homes. So our energy consumption went up instead of going down with efficiency. That's the rebound effect. And they ignore a fact that uh, consumer taste has changed drastically in the last 15 years or so. We have a shift to SUVs, crossovers, and trucks at the expense of smaller cars. So yes, today's SUVs are more efficient than yesterday's EV, uh, SUVs. Today's trucks are more efficient than yesterday's trucks. But if you are moving from uh, uh, a small Honda Civic to uh, a V8 truck, no matter what, you are consuming more. And if you look at the data, the data is stunning. And this trend is not only in the United States, this trend is global. For those of you who've been going to China over a year over year, you could have imagined the change that we've seen in the last 20 years. Everyone now wants to, have to drive a crossover or an SUV. So this is not counted. The impact of that is not counted, although the head of the IEA the other day complained about it because he was shocked someone criticized him in public and he has to say it. Uh, the other issue is the fuel economy in the U.S. has been virtually the same in recent years. So where that improvement is going to happen? And then, of course, uh, you look at the trend uh, globally, it's the same story. So this idea that we are going to lose 8 to 12 million because of ice efficiency is complete nonsense. Yes, 3, 4 million, 5 million, I accept that. More than that? No. The question is where the gap is going to come from. So, so, Dr. Ahaji, you're painting a picture of um, higher demand for oil in the years to come. So in the sort of scenarios or forecasts that you look at, if we're at 100 million barrels a day today, what do you think oil demand is? I don't know. Let's just say 10 years from now. It's, what would you say? We will go above 108 at okay. least. Okay, so let's say we're at 100, we'll go to 108. Okay, despite what might may or may or might happen with electric cars. Okay, and staying with the demand side of the equation, for people who say, "Oh, gee, we're going to have a recession, oil demand might go down," blah blah blah. 
again, my, my understanding is in the last 50 years, oil demand only declined three times. I believe it was in the, in the, in the early 70s and then in the great financial crisis and then because of COVID. So can you explain, maybe touch on the, 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 the elasticity of demand for oil relative to economic growth? I mean, it's usually like GDP minus something. It kind of like goes up a little bit every year. Sometimes it goes up a little bit more. Sometimes it goes a little bit less. But generally, it's only been three years out of the last 50 where it's gone down. So could you explain what, for people who don't aren't an expert like you and they say, oh, we might have a recession, is that going to cause oil demand to collapse? Could you talk about what is the elasticity of oil demand in response to changes in economic growth? Uh, I am not going to elaborate much about the elasticity because uh, I don't want to get into the jargon and all that stuff. But I will mention this, that uh, I seriously believe that all the academic literature on elasticity is flawed. Uh, because it's been done in the wrong way and elasticity of demand is higher than what people think. So uh, that's in terms of elasticity. And I'll stop there because right. we, can have, sp- yeah, we yeah. can have specialized space. Yeah, um, no, speciali- I, I apologize for the poor wording of the questions. My bad. Uh, let me put it another way. How many times in the last 50 years has oil demand gone down? Okay. Now, I will answer that. I, I, I know. I just mentioned the, mentioned sure. the first statement to just kind of to... Uh, to illustrate why I'm not going to focus on the elasticity in, in particular. But generally speaking, let's start from the end from now. If we end up with a recession this time, the uh, oil demand, average oil demand year over year is going to decline by up to 400,000 barrels a day, year over year. So the demand in 2022 would be at the uh, lower up to 400,000 relative to the average demand in 2021. Now, some people might think, okay, this is a small amount. No, it's not, because we wiped out all the growth and all the expected growth. And that will have an impact on oil prices that will outweigh all the supply stories that are bullish stories right now in the short run. Right. So I just want to make clear, we may be talking past each other a little bit. I totally get in the short run that could put a damper on prices. I get that. But if we zoom out a little bit and look at the bigger picture, if we get a recession here or there, which causes demand to decline by 400,000 barrels, but you're guessing 10 years from now, given the, you know, demand's going to grow on average, whatever it is, half a million, a million barrels a day. And so that 10 years from now, oh, demand might be at 108 or 110 million or some, some number like that. What I'm trying to get at is there's really, unless you think world economic growth is just going to, you know, collapse and we're going to have a horrendous recession and no growth thereafter. I just want to make sure I understand you're looking, you think it's pretty clear to you, I don't put words in your mouth, but that 10 years from now, oil demand, you know, contrary to what Kathy Wood would have us believe, oil demand is going to be, your best guess is 8% higher, 10% higher. I mean, oil demand, oil demand is not going down because we're going to have a big recession and we're going to have all these electric cars. I just want people to understand the demand is going to continue to rise and there's not a whole lot we can do about it. Is that a fair statement? Uh, it is. And I wish I can say the following. And I know a lot of people are going to laugh about this uh, 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 in a sense, uh, like what about 112? Right. So remember, but, <laughs> I, I, I'm yeah. using the 12th uh, number that Kathy Wood cited. Yeah. Yeah. As, uh, yeah, yeah. She, yeah. For everyone who missed it, Ms. Wood, um, declared that oil demand was never going to see its 2019 uh, levels again and that oil was going to $12. And the funny thing is, like, we all make mistakes. That's okay. I'm not trying to take take pleasure from our mistakes. But 
you know, she literally, I, I'll say this, you can't or you won't, but I'll say it. She is literally throwing crap against the wall and seeing what's sticking. She is making it up. I mean, Dr. Ahaji, you know, and she talks about $12 oil. It's like, it, to me, it, 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 it's so um, intellectually bankrupt. It's so dishonest. I mean, but yet she says this stuff and people, some people fall for it. And I, I think that's really harmful because in terms of the discussion that needs to take place, among sensible people, there there are some people who are just being misled by her nonsense. And I the mean, irony, the irony, George, is I know exactly how they got that number. Please, please, inquiring minds would like to know, Doctor. Please tell us. <laughs> okay, uh, what happened is, and and I've seen some world leaders basically falling into the same trap. That if I say, for example, uh, we are going to have seven hundred. Uh, million uh, electric vehicles by 2050. They just look at the equal of that in terms of oil and subtract it from today's demand, and that's it. So oh it's a complete God. static. It's a complete static view that no one will accept. Right. I mean, I mean if, if they look at it in a dynamic way, they will get the opposite results. You know, it, it, I, I, I have to control myself and not laugh too hard to hear you say that because, look, the future is unknowable. We all make mistakes. I'm not perfect. You're not perfect. But if someone was working for me, and I suspect for you, and brought that level of analysis to trying to figure this out, I'd throw them out immediately. Like, are you kidding me? But this is the stuff she runs with and goes on to – you know, make up crazy stories about the future. And only because we've had, I'm getting on my soapbox now, we've had the most, you know, people believe it. We've got this crazy liquidity situation, or at least we had it. And, and you know, Tesla goes up 30x. I mean, it's complete and utter insanity, but eventually the market corrects. So, all right, so listen, we talked about the demand side. You made that clear. Now let's talk about the supply side. Um, what do you, you know, Mike Rothman, who's a friend of this room, has made the point a number of times that without a recession, as we get towards the second half of this year, there's going to be increasing speculation on just how much excess capacity is left. Now, obviously, we get a recession. I understand it's a different story. But without a recession, and then we can talk about a recession. Without a recession, could you speak to what do you believe is the excess capacity situation of OPEC? And importantly, going forward, as we look ahead, as you see spending intentions have been announced in some various countries, they want to increase their uh, EMP budgets and whatnot, but also keep in mind the big leads and lags between declaration and spending intentions and when you actually get the extra oil. So what does the excess capacity situation look like right now? And as you look to 2023, um, what is the range of possibilities in your view? Thank you. Sure. Thank you. Uh, first of all, let me illustrate that the backup we have uh, is first the commercial inventories and the second backup uh, is the strategic petroleum reserves around the world, whether they are products or uh, crude. And then we have the spare capacity. So that's all the backup we have. In addition to all the new projects that are coming online uh, uh, every year. And of course, we have to subtract the decline rates from all those additions. So generally speaking, that's what the, what the backup is. Uh, if we look at... Uh, commercial inventories. I know a lot of people are, I, I would like to distinguish between uh, being bullish on oil and being ultra bullish on oil. 
there is a difference between the two. Uh, having prices at 100, around 100, basically, and believing that this will last longer, this is bullish. Uh, thinking that prices are going to go to 150 and 200, that's ultra bullish. The issue here is this. Does, can Saudi Arabia increase production by an additional million barrels a day for the next six months in, in a few weeks? And the answer is yes. Is the quality of oil they produce is suitable to the market in, in terms of that one million? The answer is yes. So we do have those quantities. Uh, Saudi Arabia, generally speaking, can add about 1.8 million barrels a day in terms of, theoretically, in terms of numbers. Here we have to distinguish. So let, let me explain this. If their total capacity is 12 million and they are producing 10.2 right now, then the difference 1.8 is the total spare capacity. But we have to make the distinction between effective spare capacity and total spare capacity. Effective spare capacity is what they can bring online and is demanded by the market. Because we've seen in 2008, they brought in oil online. No one requested, no one bought it. Why? Because of crude quality. So those who are making the case, the ultra bullish case, that oil prices will continue to rise because OPEC does not have enough capacity this year, they are wrong. Would they do enough, have enough capacity? And like uh, yesterday, uh, 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 is Joe here today? We're talking with Joe, your friend. And uh, uh, he, he made the point, I think it was a brilliant uh, point, uh, that we have to distinguish between the, the ability and the willingness, which is absolutely true. Uh, do we have capabilities? We do. Are they willing to use them? That's a completely different story. Are we good for 2022? Yes, even without a recession. But if we end up with a recession, a recession in 2022 is going to kill the oil market in 2023. Why? Because we are going to end up with a build in inventories by at least 1.4, 1.5 million barrels a day for the rest of the year. So we are going to have enough inventories to use next year. In addition, we have the strategic petroleum reserves. And before I go to the strategic petroleum reserves, I would like to mention something about commercial inventories. Just looking at the charts and showing a major decline and, and say I am bullish is a complete nonsense. Why? Because we have massive increase on the other side from 2015 uh, until 2018. And the other thing is, we have the share revolution that came in online in 2010. And that, that oil, which is about 7 million barrels a day in the United States, was not there before 2010. So the relative uh, importance of inventories it changed. And therefore, you cannot make a comparison between today's inventories and 2005. Simply because I have a lot of production produced domestically in the United States. So the, just taking that picture and running away with it does not make sense. To go back to the strategic petroleum reserves, as you all know, uh, the Biden administration released the first 50 million. Uh, uh, about 18 million of it was already decided in 2015 uh, by the Congress. 32 were loans. Uh, 
And then later on, they announced the release of 180 million barrels over a period of six months. And Biden himself said it, it's, it's uh, on average one million barrel a day. A couple of points here. The first one is a decrease in the strategic petroleum reserves is not bullish because this is a supply addition. And the idea that even if you believe that we are losing Russian exports, we lost the Libyan, uh, some of the Libyan oil, we lost oil from Kazakhstan, OPEC uh, added some, but not much. And yet prices declined. Remember, they were about 130 something and we went down below 100 and then now they are back around 110. So to say that this is bullish and then prices go down because of it, that tells you you are wrong. It is, this is an additional supply. People say, well, they are going to refill later. Well, we'll come later. When? Three years from now. But even then, I strongly believe the decision to release oil from the SPR was not related to all the issues we see now. This has been building up over the years between Republicans and Democrats. The SPR, it's clear that, need to be reduced. Why? Because when George W. Bush decided to increase the amount of the SPR to 700 million after September 11th, there was no share revolution at that time. That's number one. Number two, uh, the SPR was built to compensate for imports in case of emergency. Well, we already replaced light sweet crude imports because shale is light sweet. And therefore, the makeup, the quality of the crude in the SPR has to change. So experts agreed even before the Russian invasion, before the increase in prices. Experts been discussing this years ago that we need to lower the level of SPR and we need to change the quality of crude. And the objective of this 180 is to literally lower prices, lower gasoline prices, etc. whatever you want to go with the political story. But at the same time, it is fulfilling some historical perspective about what the SPR should be. So will we have a refill? I personally believe there will be a partial refill. We are not going to go back to the old level of 600 plus. And whatever refill is going to be different from the past. So... For the Canadian oil mafia, prepare yourself because some of that is going to be heavy crude and some of it is going to be medium, mostly from Latin America. Back to you, George. That's very helpful. Moving along, and th this is fascinating. I could listen to you talk all day. So we have many things to discuss. Let's hit on a few more points and then we'll get to some questions from uh, the audience. So in terms of, you know, obviously with the recession, yes, you, you, you outlined how we'd see lower prices, but you know, without a recession, you know, to, to some of your clients who are going to be oil companies or whatever, I mean, how are you encouraging them to think about a framework for oil prices going forward? In other words, should they be assuming, you know, a certain minimum level. Do you think, do you think we're in an age of higher, sustainably higher prices, whether it's a hundred dollars, it's, you know, it's not $60, you think it's 120. So if you were going to be modeling, you know, a price to try to figure out your scenarios for whether or not you're going to go ahead with uh, drilling for more oil. What sort of long-term assumptions would you use for oil prices? Okay. Generally speaking, if we talk about this year, uh, I know uh, that several of our colleagues basically are bullish on oil in the summer because they are looking at several factors 
the chief among them basically are the reopening of China and the driving season in the summer. And theoretically, this is absolutely correct. But when you think deeper about the issue, we have some serious problems. The, uh, the rising dollar is killing demand outside the United States in countries that have no, uh, where their currencies are declining. So quantity demanded by those countries is going to decline no matter, no matter what, because every time the dollar goes up, the cost of oil imports goes up. So we are going to see a reduction in demand because of the higher dollar alone. But you add to it the inflation, you add to it the higher food prices, you add to it the higher interest rate, etc. It's very hard to see a major rebound in China or a major rebound this summer uh, in the United States because of the driving season. The ticket, ticket, uh, uh, airline tickets are going through the roof. Uh, the, that's number one. People say, well, it's cheaper to drive. Well, at, at 5 to $10 gasoline, it's not cheaper to drive. I did some calculations yesterday, and I found out it's really a crisis for a family to drive uh, a couple of thousand miles to go to somewhere on vacation because the cost is really crazy. And you want to go west, you get nailed. You want to go northeast, you get nailed. Where are you going to go? You want to go south, temperatures are 110, and we are going to have power outages. You better stay home. So that's in two th th this is for 2022. Going forward, we are having serious problems. I mentioned some of them earlier that oil prices will rebound uh, uh, if we have a recession. And the medium term to long term, it is very clear that we are heading for uh, energy crisis. And uh, this $100 oil probably is here to stay. When you talk about 150 and 200 my reply will be, tell me the value of the dollar then. Back right. to you. That makes sense. Great. One important question we haven't touched on so far, Dr. Ahaji, is the issue of Russian oil production and their exports. Can you explain, please, for the layman in the room, the average person in the room, what's happening to that oil, their production, what's happening to it, where is it being sold? And um, do you think their exports will decline much? So just some comments on Russian oil, please. Sure. Generally speaking, we are going to see some decline, but not as much as the uh, stories that have been reported by some analysts and the media, and especially political analysts, because political analysts, the whole idea here is there are people who, are, who survive on fear, literally. They sell newsletters based on fear. And we are seeing all those stories coming mostly from newsletters that are paid newsletters. Uh, what they missed is, look, probably I was the only one in the world who've done field work on oil smuggling in several parts of the world. I'm talking about major operations. And the fact is, Russians have already started this with the help of the Iranians. And the Iranians, in fact, one of the issues that the Iranians have been working with the Russian mafia for the last 10 years. So the connection was already there. And the Russians have already started loading, loading ghost ships just like the Iranians and the Venezuelans. So whatever numbers we are going to see from the media, they are the, those are the low numbers. They are not showing, those are the lowest numbers, in fact. But there will be a lot of smuggled oil. And the reason why I believe that Russian exports will decline no matter what, simply because of the infrastructure uh, issues 
because the way they build their infrastructure over the years directed toward Europe to directed toward uh, certain uh, seas, uh, etc. So the, that there will be some limits. But in general, they are going to use ghost, ghost ships and they are going to sm smuggle that oil uh, no matter what. And there will be so many games. In fact, when I did the work on Iran, I found out that there are nine games. Uh, I don't have to go through the details of those. Nine games being played by Iran and its customers, including China, and how they uh, play those games, and they are able to smuggle oil. Iran exports are always higher than what the media is reporting, always. So Russian exports are going to be higher than what people are expecting. There will be some decline, but not a major decline. At the same time, and my, uh, for those who do not know about this, don't worry about it, and you can search it later. Uh, what people do not know is this, that in the last four weeks, the Russians been going and visiting certain countries. You can follow the news if you want to and follow each item to understand what's going on. I cannot reveal much on this, but what's been happening is the Russians been contacting certain countries visiting them, meeting them in closed rooms. So no emails, no phone calls, nothing, period. Face-to-face -face in, in faraway rooms. And they are working on swap deals to circumvent the current sanctions and any possible sanctions in the future. And this is going to be the trend. And once Bloomberg or waiters break the story, remember me, I said this here first. Back to you. Wow. Just wow. Sounds like Mark Rich, if he was still alive, and Dr. Haji, this is Mark Rich's kind of a market. I mean, the Iranians playing games with oil sales. There's nothing new. I mean, but... Can, can I tell you a story about Michael Rich? Yes, please. Yes, please. Okay. Um, I, I got audited by the IRS and threatened by the IRS when I was a graduate student because they told me that I lied about my taxes and I have to pay... $800 because I have a research grant and counted as a grant and then the IRS counted that as income. And I refused to pay. So they start calling me and threatening me. And the story of Michael Rich was all over the news. And I told the guy, the IRS, I said, "Isn't it's just a shame that this guy owes the federal government $40 billion and he got burdened. And you guys, I am just a graduate student working as in, in a restaurant, and you are following me day and night for $800. And he laughed and he said, yes, sorry, but you have to pay. Back to you. Well, just well. The laws are always for the little people, as they say. So, uh, Dr. Haji, why don't we just stop with the questions from me right now? Um, I'm sure there we have a lot of smart people in the room. You recognize a lot of friends in here, and, and I'd like to hear from some of them. So, May, may I add just one more yeah. point, because yeah. I think it's important to the discussion? Thank you. Uh, when we talk about the future of electric vehicles, because, again, your, your original question was about the future demand for oil and why I, be, why I am bullish or very bullish or ultra-bullish, if, if you want to use that term, in the, in the long term. Uh, there are three issues facing policymakers with electric vehicles. The first one is financial, how they are going to replace gasoline and diesel taxes. These are in billions of dollars every year, how they are going to replace them. 
we've seen states in the United States, 13 of them basically, uh, are increasing registration fees on electric vehicles to compensate for gasoline taxes. We've seen countries in Europe, including Norway, reneging on their policies because they saw their budget just going down. So what they are going to do in this case, uh, or especially small communities, how they are going to compensate for that. Then we have an environmental uh, disaster because of that, because what we are going to do, uh, how we are going to dispose uh, of hundreds of millions of batteries uh, and every one of them, as you all, all know, between like 600 pounds and 1,400 pounds. Uh, and uh, everything we've seen so far are baby steps. Are we going to create another Yucca Mountain? And the question here is, who is going to pay for it? If the public is going to pay for it, then one of the major issues in taxation, as you all know, is equity. All of a sudden, the poor guy is subsidizing the rich guy. If you are going to charge those who are going to buy the Teslas, then the price of that will go up and the economics will change. And the last one, which is the most important, is a national security issue. This dependence on foreign imports of batteries and the metals needed. This is an amazing story here because the United States, if you believe the United States launched wars for oil, and the United States historically could import oil from more than 20 countries, most of them are friendly to the United States. How do you think about getting cobalt and lithium and graphite and nickel from only four or five countries? Two of them basically are Russia and China. And if you look at the numbers, the numbers are just striking that forget about who produces nickel and uh, uh, graphite and lithium and copper and all that stuff. Look at processing. Processing of all of those is controlled by China. So the national security issue is very big. And that's why we've seen Biden doing all the lithium thing, et cetera, et cetera. Why? Because they know it. And they know that what's going to limit the growth of electric vehicles in the future is the national security argument. Back to you. Thanks, Dr. Haji. By the way, one question which we didn't touch on before we go to uh, speakers. I'd like we'll go, we're going to go to uh, KFAB and then uh, Shrub and then Mark Newman. Um, could you just speak? I know in another room a week or two ago, uh, I was laughing. You were talking about the 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 accounting fraud of ESG, the carbon accounting fraud. It's worse than Enron. And you were talking about pe you know people counting trees all of a sudden. It's just sort of nonsense. Could you just give a brief review of the accounting fraud that goes behind the carbon accounting, please? Uh, yes. Uh, what I did, basically, I did the survey uh, of government and companies and what they've been doing uh, in the last two, three years uh, in terms of ESG and carbon neutrality policies. And uh, one of the uh, main uh, issue is uh, they are, those who are really sincere, they are going for the low-hanging fruit. And that's it. So uh, will you hold on just a second? Just a second, please. No worries. Take your time. Sorry. Um, no worries. So I, I summed up uh, the results in five categories and I use them. I, I like to use this metaphor all the time. Uh, take that behavior and translate that into an animal behavior. Uh, find a matching behavior in animals. And uh, uh, first behavior, uh, basically the rabbit behavior. The rabbit behavior is just divest from oil and gas or run away. And it's rabbit behavior is a, is it is a devastating behavior because you think you are divesting because you like the environment and you, you are protecting climate change. You just destroy the climate change because you are selling your stuff to the guy who does not care. 
So, yes, you chickened out. You are a rabbit when you divest. Uh, the, the second behavior, uh, the second behavior uh, is the uh, cow behavior, which is you you just do what what you can basically, and and that's it. They there is a, there are laws. You do the minimum, and that's it. The third one is the most serious, which is the scavenger behavior. The scavenger behavior is they don't do anything. They 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 tell their people, look at what I've been doing in the last forty years. Find me anything green. And I will count it toward my policies. So if I am Walmart and I have those skylights in the stores for the last 40 years, I am already green 40 years ago. But nothing changed on the ground. Uh, some people are talking about, um, uh, the, uh, okay, look at my canvas. I have 2,000 trees. Each one of them is 100 years old. Count them in my carbon neutrality because they suck carbon. Well, those trees have been there for 100 years. So there is no change on the ground. And there are people who uh, uh, basically uh, come do all those policies. I call it the Fox uh, policy, where they combine all those policies together. But the, the 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 end result is, if you count all the carbon reduced by the companies, it is zillions of times the actual carbon reduction in the world. Back to you. Whoa. So you're saying basically all this all this carbon auditing and all these claims of everyone wants to be green and this company claims that and that company claims this. It's all nonsense from what you're saying. It's just a shell game. Do I understand you correctly? Sorry, will you repeat that again? Yeah. It, so what you're saying is all these claims of improving a company's carbon footprint, for the most part, it's all just an accounting game. Nothing really has changed. Is that what you're saying? Uh, well, uh, it is uh, a carbon accounting in the matter of all Enrons. And uh, the, the funny thing is we've seen companies, for example, getting rid of uh, old refineries. And they went to the board and showed them that their carbon footprint declined by 40% and they got cheered by the board. But someone else bought that refinery and the world did not benefit. <laughs> hey, Dr. Haji, the... Don't let the facts get in the way of, of a story. I, I think Kathy would be very upset to, to hear what you're saying. All right, let's just stop right there. Um, just to reset the room, we've had the pleasure of listening to Dr. Anas Alhaji, one of the world's foremost experts on, on, on energy and energy policy. Um, wow, this is, this is an extraordinary room. Everyone needs to listen to what, to what, to what Dr. Alhaji has to say. Let's go to some of the smart cookies in the room for their thoughts. So I want to go to KFAB first. And then Shrub, and then Mark Newman. KFAB, good to see you. You have a question for Dr. Alhaji? I do. Th thank you, George. Thank you, Dr. Alhaji. Um, uh, generally, uh, and obviously, defer to your expertise on the topic, but it, for what it's worth, which probably isn't much, generally in agreement with your your views on kind of a cyclical and intermediate term basis. My my question, and and I don't have any expertise on it, it's more just thematic question, is when you start talking about 10, 20, 30 year type of modeling, it gets quite complicated and difficult. How much of what you've talked about in your presentation this morning accounts for the demographic time bomb that's going off in much of the developed world? Uh, I mean, when I look at Japanese consumption for energy over the last 20 years since theirs has started going off, 
it's basically flatlined to, to a decent degree. So what happens if, you know, China, China, obviously a train wreck demographically, but Russia, Western Europe, even the U.S. is teetering around replacement on a demographic basis. So h- how do you think about that? Is, is you know, obviously also with the, the debt bomb that is uh, also in the West uh, with all this excess debt, debt and potential stagnation and growth, meaning if most of the developed world plus China becomes ch- uh, what Japan's been over the last 20 years, how, do, how does that factor into your thinking over the next kind of 10, 20 year time frame? I am, I am really glad you brought this up because this was one of the points that I intended to talk about originally, but uh, of course we are running out of time. So thank you very much for bringing this up. Here is the counter argument where those outlooks are wrong. Uh, Those outlooks are counting all the declines you are talking about, but they are forgetting the uh, tens of millions of people migrating from poor areas to rich areas. We already know that we have a big story on the the border in the south. We already know the boat uh, uh, issues in the Mediterranean where Africans and others basically going to Europe. Now we have millions of Ukrainians going to Europe. Now think about it this way. And I, uh, in my timeline, I did uh, uh, post some numbers. Um, uh, an immigrant from, you know, the, the U.S. brought in uh, tens of thousands of Afghans to the United States. Uh, the, the consumption of energy for each increased 70-fold, 70-fold of each. They, they came from mountain. There was nothing. And now they are in a very nice apartment uh, with all the goodies in it. Uh, for Ukrainians, it's almost double if they go to Germany. So the counter argument here is uh, the problem with those outlooks is that they are, not count- they are counting the decline in population, but they are not counting the impact of increased energy consumption because of the immigration. Now, OPEC outlook... And, and uh, by the way, OPEC outlook is way better than the international energy outlook. There is more common sense in it than the others. Uh, OPEC outlook has a segment on immigration, but their estimates of the impact is way low. So they are aware of the issue, but I understand the sensitivity of it. And here is why. I mentioned earlier at the beginning of the presentation that uh, uh, those outlooks represent the wishes of the members and no uh, analyst can tell them, no, you are wrong, we need to adjust this. So they are taking everything at face value. At the same time, because of politics, OPEC cannot uh, reflect the, va- the, the, uh, the real political issues of immigration because they will be labeled. So I completely understand why they are very conservative in their numbers. Uh, because if they go right now and start talking about Ukraine and the stuff, and uh, as you know, uh, Russia is part of OPEC+. But for me, as an independent analyst, I can measure that. I can talk about it. And the fact is the net of the decline in population and immigration is positive, and it is a large number. Thanks again for bringing this up. Yeah. That's a great question. That's great. Thank you, Keith. Okay, let's go to Shrub, Shrub, um, and then Mark Newman. Shrub, good to see you. What's up, my friend? Shrub? Hey, George. Hi, Dr. Arnas. Thank you very much for your time. Um, it's a great discussion, and it's on longer-term issues, so I apologize if this is a short-term, uh, shorter-term question. But British Petroleum was uh, forecasting um, 
Russian production to be down uh, 1 million in April uh, and 2 million in May. And uh, they were right on the April drop, which was a bit more than 1 million. But then in May, the uh, Russians were saying that they will actually increase production. So, you know, British Petroleum, they're usually wrong about everything. Uh, I was expecting they would be right, uh, given they have knowledge about Russia. But I was just wondering what your view is shorter term about uh, May, June, July, and if there's any risk of the of well shut-ins in Russia at this point, or will they be able to divert um, uh, sales to other countries like you mentioned? Uh, a few things here. The first one is, we don't have any companies that left Russia. We don't have any service companies that left Russia. And if you look at the fine print, and some of you heard me saying this before, if you look at the fine print, service companies said they will have no new investment. And we already know all those tricks long ago. What does it mean we are not going to have new investments? So if I have a project that I've been working on for 15 years and they want to expand it, uh, and this is really kind of a brownfield expansion, this is not new. And therefore, I can expand it and I can stay five years longer uh, in this case. So... The issue here is those service companies are there and they are going to stay there. That's their bread and butter. They are going to stay there. They are not going to care about the um, moral issues. Look, this is a fact of life. No investor in anywhere in the world, in any nationality, is going to invest for uh, the time of war and it's not going to invest for the sake of the country. Investors are there because of money. End of story. And what we heard from the White House a couple of days ago from the new speaker was literally a joke, asking the oil companies to make a sacrifice. That just was a joke. That was so naive and disqualifying. The, sorry, keep going. Sorry, go ahead. Sorry. So uh, what, what we are seeing here is the service companies are there, and therefore there is no fear of a major decline so far at this stage. I really advise anyone who is interested in Russia to read the BP story in Russia and the Shell story in Russia because they are fascinating stories. There are many lessons in them. And when they said we are going to get out, the Ukraine invasion was God's gift to BP and Shell because they really wanted to get out years ago and they were not able to. Let me remind you that TNK uh, basically was supposedly a joint venture in Russia after they brought in the technology and after they brought in uh, the expertise and everything else, and everything is done, completely done. What Putin did, Putin started harassing them, and then he forced them, he literally forced them to sell their shares, and BP basically ended up by default sharing that uh, project, but they have no say in it completely. And in 2008, because of the harassment, the Russian mafia has to help the CEO of TNK run away from Russia. So he was smuggled out of Russia in 2008. Do you know who, who was that CEO of TNK at that time? He's the current CEO of PP. As for Shell, the same story. They brought in Shell, they developed Khalin, and they got the technology, they got the expertise, and once it's operational, they told them, we are going to take 50% from you. Just like that, Putin way. Wow. So 
the and and let me make the final statement here. I know there are still European companies operating there. All the oil companies' investment in Russia, all of it, is only a fraction of their investment in LNG projects in Australia. All the total investment of those oil companies in Russia is only a fraction of their LNG investment in Australia. Wow. That's huge. That's just an incredible five minutes of my week. Thank you, Dr. Anas. Yeah, Rob, hang around. Thank you. Once we're done talking energy, we want to talk markets. Uh, I'd like to go to Mark Newman, uh, who's a friend of the room and a personal friend. Uh, before he speaks, uh, I think he's got to be careful. He's not allowed to toot his own horn, but there's a new ETF that's out. Um, it's in my Twitter feed. It's uh, tied to uh, the ES. It's an anti-ESG uh, ETF. Um, it's actually the the anecdote to um, Kathy Wood. Uh, includes energy stocks, tobacco stocks, defense stocks. I think it's really, really fascinating. Um, again, you know, capital goes where it's treated best to steal the line from Walter Riston. And returns in those sectors are looking pretty good and look well situated for the next few years. Can't say so much for the Kathy Wood type stock. So I urge everyone to go look at Mark Newman's Twitter feed and you can learn more about um, this ETF. Um, so again, I, I think for compliance reasons, he can't say very much. So I'm just putting it out there. So Mark, good to see you, my friend. Well, what's on your mind? Hey, George. Good morning, everybody. Uh, Dr. Alhaji, again, amazing stuff. Uh, so I wanted, you were mentioning some politics and I wanted to just touch on sort of, well, I'll, I'll, I, the question will be at the end here. I just want to lead in a little bit. Uh, and it refers to the politics of the whole situation. So I was listening to uh, Lee Gehring, uh, uh, a podcast a few weeks ago, talking about the QE2, the old ship that brought everyone across the Atlantic, you know, a couple thousand people in about four or five days. And then the replacement of that in energy terms, right, was the 707, which carried people in five hours, a couple less than the thousand, but they found efficiency in getting people across the pond. And then if you remember, the Concord came out, right? And that was about a two-hour journey across, but it only pulled about 65 people, 70 people, and it really became inefficient use of energy, uh, along with some other things, and they shut down the Concord. And then Lee Gehring went on to say the only time that efficiency in energy is reduced in pursuit of policy, so in this case, the Concord, they shut it down because it wasn't an efficient use of energy transporting people in the time frame, and it was just excessive. So the only way that going forward we can use inefficient energy sources to, 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 to help, help society function is if the government sort of outlaws or bans it, which we're sort of seeing in energy, right? Or they subsidize the inefficiencies, which they're doing in the alternatives, EV, et cetera. So I wanted to ask Dr. Alhaji, because I know that some of these energy sources are competing, you know, competing sources between each other, nuclear, oil, et cetera. I wondered what Dr. Haji's sort of five to 10 year view on the political influence on each of these groups and sectors looks like from where he's sitting. Because for me, nuclear energy, we run our submarines on nuclear energy. OK. And France, Germany, the whole nuclear situation's a joke. And I just wondered what Dr. Haji's view was on politics in shaping 
that landscape because, yeah, it's part of the ESG thing. And we can talk about the ESG orphans index at another time. But I really wanted to hear his opinion on the politics going forward, influencing these things. Sure. Uh, I think time frame plays a big role here in answering this question. Uh, markets are extremely powerful. Powerful to the extent that markets trump religion and trump beliefs. And that's why people sin. People sin because the power of markets is more than the power of religion. And in the long run, markets trump government policy. Even in the short run, because all this tax evasion and the black markets we see around the world, this is the influence of markets, people trying to avoid the regulations and government policy. So there is always this parallel market that exists under government policy. And I think this applies to energy in, in so many ways. Uh, but if you look at technology trends in the last 200, 300 years, again, time frame matters here. We have seen the pundits of uh, electric uh, vehicles basically saying that uh, the, uh, the electric vehicle revolution is similar to the adoption of cars after uh, horses and carriages. And it is the same adoption like uh, phones and smartphones. This is a complete nonsense and the comparison is absolutely not correct. If you look at historical trends of technology adoption, the first observation is the start is all the same. All of them start the same. And uh, everything is still young. Shale is still young. Electric vehicles are still young if you want to look at it in the last 20 years. By the way, electric vehicles are older than ICE vehicles by several decades. Electric vehicles are very old. Anyway, uh, if you look at the development moving from a horse and a carriage to a car, that was a priceless move. If you look at the development of uh, smartphones and movement from landlines to smartphones, that was priceless. But if you look at the movement from the cars we use, the ICE cars to electric vehicles, it's not priceless at all. In fact, you have to pay extra to get it. There is a cost involved. So this parallel between the two is a complete nonsense. But if you look back at this technology that became widespread, this technology has uh, certain characteristics. And the first characteristics, it gives people freedom or more freedom. It gives them more mobility uh, in this case and save time. So back to your point about the Concorde, et cetera, et cetera, that. So we have freedom, we have mobility, and we have saving times. And this is the general trend. But at the same time, you don't want to be excessive in those and take them a step farther, like what they did with the Concorde. But all the technology that succeeded and became global, globally widespread. I mean, for God's sake, even if you go to the Sub-Sahara in Africa, you will see women uh, carrying cell phones and using some satellite from Europe somewhere. Uh, why? Because the, the, the benefits are just priceless. Electric vehicles do not give you that. Uh, so there are these differences. But to go back to your point, it's about freedom, mobility, and saving times. 
and the arrange for those. You don't want to be excessive on that. So with the Concord, you want to save more time and all of a sudden you end up with other problems. Back to you. Terrific, terrific question. Thanks for that, Mark, and uh, good luck with the ETF. Before we uh, go to our next questioner, um, I just want to take a moment here just to remind everyone, a lot of friends in the room, this has just been a fantastic room, Dr. Hodge. I can't thank you enough. Uh, we're learning so much from you, and, and your message needs to be heard in the public square. One of the things I really deplore about our current times is, is just how polarized everything has become, how oftentimes it's just the loudest voice that gets heard, that you cannot have an intelligent discussion about um, certain issues, whether it's in politics or economics. And unfortunately, this whole area of energy, as you know, there are a lot of people who get very triggered by the whole climate change situation. And it's, it's really, it's a religion for some of these people. And the world's full of uncertainty. And I like to joke, I've used the phrase once, I've used it many times. I'm not old enough to, to know everything. Again, I repeat, I'm not old enough to know everything. And so I consider myself a lifelong learner and I learned so much from listening to you. So I want to thank you for, for your wisdom. In a, in a more bigger scheme of things, we've had an incredible number of fantastic speakers in this room, um, like yourself. Um, you know, we recently had Albert Supporta, uh, Michael Belkin, Michael Kantritz, Michael Howe, Tony Greer. I mean, the list just goes on and on. Uh, Peter Atwater, Chris Verone, John Roke. It's just extraordinary. Eric Nuttall, who was part of the Canadian Oil Mafia, I don't remember. Anyway, we are we are bringing bringing the highest level of of discourse uh, to investment conversations in this room. Um, we're closing on thirty thousand um, uh, Twitter followers. We have a YouTube channel. We're up on uh, uh, on Apple and Spotify. And I think you know our, my Canadian Oil Mafia friends talk about trying to uh, put a, put an end to energy ignorance. You're you're certainly helping that cause and. I'm just really thrilled because it's just helping people learn more about how to make intelligent decisions with respect to their capital. At any rate, to that end, um, you know, these rooms are free. We don't charge anybody. We don't want to charge anybody. We've asked everybody to pay forward and give to a charity. And my colleague, Carol Strone, is with us, and she's headed up our, um, our, uh, our philanthropic efforts. And, you know, we, and Carol might maybe just update people where we are and where do we think we're going. So, Carol, the floor is yours. Good morning, George. Good morning, everybody. Thank you, Dr. Anas, for your amazing remarks. It's always a great learning experience to to join you in George's rooms. And um, what I'm noticing is so many familiar familiar faces this morning, um, and many that have been in George's rooms for about six or eight weeks now. And uh, so many of you have already heard me talk about World Central Kitchen. For those of you who haven't, just very briefly, we're focusing on food aid in Ukraine, uh, getting food to people who have lost everything, been displaced. Um, we, and I've talked at length about why we identified World Central Kitchen. So for those of you who are new, I'm just going to encourage you to reach me, DM me, email me. I'm not going to repeat myself today. Um, there may come a time, hopefully, when this need doesn't need to be met. There may come a time when there's another entity, whether it's a government or another organization, that does a better job of meeting this need. Um, so far, World Central Kitchen is, is a leader in this area. And there may come a time when uh, there's an equal or greater need that this community of listeners um, feels that it should 
address rather than the one that we've been addressing, um, which raises the question of, you know, should we harness the giving power of this community of listeners? You've all been so generous that you've gotten us over our $200,000 goal. Um, it's not posted yet, but there's one more gift that's going to put us um, roughly $210,000 in a very short seven weeks at this point. So the question is um, that some of your my regular listeners have asked is, is should we address other needs in the world? Of course, there are many. What I would say to that, which we haven't talked about in this space before, is the fact that World Central Kitchen is active around the world. They're in Santa Fe, New Mexico, around New Mexico, where there's been a horrific wildfire helping people in those communities. They're up in Buffalo, New York, where there was a horrific shooting this last week, helping those in need. They're in Puerto Rico, helping local fishermen to develop sustainable fisheries. They're in South Africa now, where there have been horrible landslides and floods. So I think my my, our answer for the time being is that every dollar we give to support World Central Kitchen's efforts in Ukraine frees up another dollar that they get from other generous people to do incredible work elsewhere in the world. Um, so I would look at it that way, that we are having an impact throughout the world. Um, and uh, the question that we've we've been wrestling with is, is sh shall we keep at it? And I, I'm inclined to say we should keep at it and see if we can maybe even make it to another crazy goal. 200,000 sounded crazy to begin with, but I'm wondering if maybe half a million isn't so crazy for this room to raise by the time we're, we're done um, a few more months from now. So uh, a thank you again to all of you who have given so generously and to those of you who are, new, who are new, reach out to me. I'm happy to have a dialogue with you. Thank you. Thank, thank you, Carolyn. Thank you for all you do. Uh, I've reposted to my uh, Twitter feed the link to World Central Kitchens, and you can also find it in Carol's uh, Twitter feed. And again, if you have specific questions about, you know, company matching plans or uh, contributions from donor advised funds, Carol's your person uh, to deal with that. So thank you, Carol. Um, Dr. Alhaji, uh, we've been at this for an hour and 40 minutes. We're gonna keep this room going, but I don't want you to feel that you're compelled to stay. Um, I don't know how you're set on time. If you want to take another question, uh, or, 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 or I, I can I can okay. stay for the next twenty minutes. Okay, great. So we'll 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 run the room till one o'clock, maybe a little bit longer. But that's thank you so much for being so generous with your you're time. Welcome. Okay, good. So let's go to uh, Michael and then Andrea. Michael, the floor is yours. Hi, George, Doctor Haji. This was fascinating. Too much to digest. Thank you so much. A quick comment. I think ESG is a wealth transfer mechanism and part of financial repression. Now, my question, I think you didn't mention Venezuela, the biggest reserves in the world. How could it change the equation? And this is my question. Thank you. Uh, you're welcome. Uh, no, it cannot change the equation. Uh, uh, even in the long run, I will explain to you quickly what the situation is. Uh, in fact, at this stage, the only country in the world that is able and willing to, to increase production is Venezuela. Uh, but they cannot for technical reasons because they need diluent. They need what we call natural gasoline or C5. Iran is sending some, historically Russia sent some, uh, so they need that. Historically, they used to get that from U.S. shale, 
but Trump, as you know, banned that. So if they can get that, and that's, uh, by the way, I would like to mention a statement here. Uh, remember when uh, the Biden administration started talking about banning uh, Russian oil imports to the United States? And immediately they sent someone to Venezuela to talk about uh, getting uh, some Venezuelan oil. I'm going to make a statement here, and I'm going to state it in a way that I hope is not offensive to some. Uh, I believe, I personally believe, that some of the Russian oil that was coming to the United States was a Venezuelan oil, and the Biden administration did not want to lose it. So since the Russians are not bringing it, they wanted another way to bring that Venezuelan oil to the United States. However, uh, Venezuela now, if it can get that diluent, uh, it can increase production in few weeks, I mean, just in a very short period, by 400 to 500,000 barrels a day. But that's it. They cannot do anything. It takes uh, at least uh, a year and a half to two years with foreign investment to be able to uh, start increasing production. To add one million barrels a day, they need uh, the star lining up for three years in a row to be able to do that. Uh, after that, if we have change of regime or the regime itself changes behavior, um, they need to reevaluate the whole policy of focusing on this heavy crude because it makes more sense to reevaluate the reserves, cut them, so lower them, and focus on the higher quality reserves than the big number for the low quality reserves. Uh, I think that's a better policy than just focusing on the 300 million that uh, uh, most of it will not be produced in the first place. Back to you, George. Thanks, Dr. Haji. By the way, one question we didn't touch on. What is What do you make of the fact that the last few months the OPEC production has been, has not even lived up to what the uh, monthly quotas would allow? Is there anything significant about that? Yes. First of all, uh, the market is framing it that way. And uh, if you want to analyze the market correctly, you are not supposed to frame it that way. Because this quota is meaningless. We already knew uh, since they started uh, enforcing it uh, around the end of 2020 that there will be a time when those who violated their quota increased production, they will compensate by not producing the extra amount. So in a sense, if you look at it over a certain time frame, all of a sudden are compliant, although they did violate the quota in the past. Uh, and we knew as they keep increasing uh, uh, the ceiling of the quota that some countries will not uh, be able to increase production. So this was already known. And some people who are ultra bullish, they start using the argument that we have to be bullish because they are not meeting their quota. Uh, this is just like I'm telling you, uh, you know what, uh, I'm, I'm going to uh, go to this marathon. I really, really wanted to run a 10,000K uh, marathon. Uh, but, you know, after I start, I stop. Well, just a talk. It has no value. And those who are counting it, they should go back and look at the experts, what the experts were saying in 2020, because all of this was known to us at that time, that those countries will reach a limit and they cannot uh, uh, increase production. Therefore, the focus should be on the actual increase. And OPEC has been increasing production every single month, uh, recent months. So that's really what matters to the market. It's not the difference between, I mean, it's the same argument about the wishes 
of uh, 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 climate change policies and how the IEA and OPEC are counting them. Exactly the same argument that they want to do this, but they cannot deliver. And now we, 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 they cannot do this and they cannot deliver. There is, the difference here is the first one is being counted in the outlook. The second one is not being counted. No one's outlook basically is counting on OPEC ceiling. Right, that makes sense. It's an excellent point. Thank you for that. Uh, we'll go to Andrea, and then after Andrea, we're going to go to Robert. Andrea, welcome. What's your question for Dr. Anas? Dr. Alhaji, please. Hey, hey, how are you guys? Thank you for the room. Um, I just have a like a uh, kind of like a more mac, really macro. So um, let's say um, I, I like so the EV stuff. I get it. You have to dig a ton of soil to make the product like that little battery that you look at that's all shiny new is a lot of money to make it and then theoretically recharging and i don't know the exact numbers of how long it lasts and and do the math compared to oil but so my question is like russia um survived i mean their inflation is out of control their central banks raised their interest rates, I mean, almost 20%, they survived. Why, when the U.S., I mean, we're not Russia, I get it. I like to live a little better, but why can't we just So, so a, 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 Andrew, a, Andrew, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but could you yep. please, could you please frame a question, please? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, why can't, um, why aren't we going, I mean, why can't the interest rates keep going up to sink the market, which will cause recession, I don't want to say a D word, and then um, oil go down temporarily, and that's when you buy it, basically, in my head. And then um, your opinion about, like, it's a short-term question, but um, do you see that happening? Or would Saudi Arabia or, like, the big oil producers flood the market to keep money coming in, and then it will still go down because supply side goes up? Um, so, so where so, are so, we? Okay. Yeah so, so, yeah, so I think the, basically the question is the likelihood of lower oil prices if we get a recession, and what do you think the response would be from Saudi and the others with, with respect to their production? Yes. Um, generally speaking, uh, we, we have conventional wisdom that's common, and people talk about it all the time, that high oil prices will cause recession and they cause inflation, and every... Uh, U.S. recession was preceded by by a period of high prices. We have some research and, and, and academic papers on this, etc. This is nonsense. The fact is, if you go to all those papers and articles and take oil data out of the model and put interest rate or put taxes or put government expenditures, you get exactly the same results. So oil prices on their own do not cause recession. High oil prices on their own do not cause inflation. What causes recession and inflation in this case is the government reaction and the central bank reaction to high oil prices. If the reaction is wrong, we end up with a recession and uh, inflation. If the reaction is right, nothing. We already have experience between 2002 and 2008. Oil prices continue to go up and we did not, economic growth continued to go up. So the idea here is it's the combination of those policies. And what we have now, to answer your question directly, what we have now is increasing oil prices while interest rate is increasing and the dollar is increasing. Between 2002 and 2008, the dollar was declining and interest rate was declining. Uh, taxes was declining. 
So what the, the probability of recession is extremely high if we are not already in a recession. And that will lead to uh, lower demand. And the lower demand will be higher than all the other bullish factors and the decline from Russia and other places. Oil prices will decline. In my view, OPEC will start cutting production again if oil prices go below $60, although they will never talk about prices. Since 2016, OPEC ministers are told not to talk about prices anymore. They talk about balances. They talk about supply and demand. They talk about storage, inventories, but they cannot talk about prices. But we as the independent analysts, we can translate that into prices. So once we do the translation, in my view, that OPEC will start cutting production if prices go below 60, and therefore uh, uh, the floor is 60. Will we go below 60 in case of a recession for a few days or a few hours? Yes. But in general, the floor is 60 in this case. Back to you, George. Thank you, Dr. Haji. And, and, and it's, I really like the way you put that. You're speaking in terms of multiple time frames: the short-term, medium-term, and longer-term. And I'm extremely bullish for the long-term energy outlook, but I know a point of contention that's come up in some of these rooms with our Canadian oil mafia friends. Things things do not go up in a straight line. And the scenario you're talking about, you know, maybe we see a dip and it causes stocks to sell off, and we'll have a chance to to, to, to accumulate them at lower levels. I mean, so for myself. I'm very conflicted about energy energy stocks. I, I vacated a few weeks ago. I just I'm being nervous about the macroeconomic environment. And I noticed it's quite interesting. I'll put the uh, chart back up, but I think it was John Roke or somebody put a chart up the other day. I'll, I'll, I'll tweet it out. It showed three different commodity groups. It had it had um, energy, uh, agricultural products, and base metals, and oil and agricultural products are less economically sensitive and they've been doing extremely well in comparison to the base metal prices, which have sold off copper, etc. So those which are more economically sensitive have been, have been declining in fear of a recession. And my cons- but you know, people still have to heat their home. They still have to drive their car. They still have to eat food. And so relatively speaking, agriculture and energy have been doing better. But my concern is, and especially when you keep in mind that, as, as you know, Dr. Haji, not to tell you, but just to remind everyone in the room, the paper market for oil is 40 or 50 times the size of the physical market. So if the narrative becomes going into a recession, I'm sure a lot of the speculators will reduce their positions and you could easily see the oil price come off. So for that reason, I'm a little bit cautious on, on oil and oil stocks in the uh, short term. Would you? What would your view be on oil and oil stocks? What's your opinion? You have a different view, or what do you think, Doctor Ahad? No, I. I mean, you stated uh, that very well. Uh, just a couple of comments here. Generally speaking, one of the reasons why oil stocks did not perform well, there were, of course, several reasons for that, and you got to put each reason in its time frame. But when we started the increase in oil prices, oil stocks did not respond. Why? Because most companies, especially mid-size and smaller size, were hedged at the low price. So while prices were above 60, those guys were making 40 and $45. So it, it, stocks did not pick up that time. And by the time, basically, we moved on, etc., there were other issues. And based on my view, the, every time the tech stock went up and they performed very well, and Tesla performed very well at that time. Why invest in oil stocks? So 
as tech goes down, this is another reason. That's where we are, that divergence between oil prices and oil stocks is going to narrow over time, uh, regardless of the recession. It's going to narrow over time as investors migrate from tech stock back to energy when tech stock goes down. And the other thing is people realize this ESG thing uh, uh, and, and that's, it's not really scary. And this wave of divestment is going to come to uh, an end because they are realizing now, if you look at what happened with ExxonMobil board, you realize that uh, if you divest, you are a rabbit, you are a chicken, you just run out, run away, and you are giving your seat to someone who does not care about climate change. So you just destroyed climate change while your intention is not to do so. If you want to make a change, you stay at the table. You will be heard if you are at the table. If you just run away, no one is going to hear you. You want to hire people to demonstrate pipelines? Go ahead and do it. But that's all you can do. That's great. You. Thank you. So, Dr. Ahaji, we'll take one more question, energy question. And again, you've been so generous with your time. Um, class will be dismissed. You're free to go after this question. Don't feel any obligation to hang around. We'll keep the room going for a few more minutes to discuss some other matters. But um, this will be the last energy question. So, again, I want to thank you for your generous time. I know I've learned an incredible amount today, and I'm sure everybody speak for everyone else. And I'm hopeful it's not just a couple thousand people that listen that are in the room today, but with the replays and uh, uh, YouTube channel and Apple and Spotify, um, the way it turns out, roughly 90% of the listens don't occur live. So I would expect there'll be, I don't know, 20, 25, 30,000 people who will hear your words. So please understand, it's not just the 700 people you see in the room right now. Um, your voice really carries. So you are really, really doing a public service. This is a message that needs to be heard. So thank you again, Dr. Ahaji. So Robert, um, you have a question for Dr. Ahaji? Robert, the floor is yours. Hi, Dr. Ahaji. Thank you for coming on here, sharing your knowledge and insights. Uh, my question's on Russian refining. How much have we seen Russian refinery runs be affected from, from everything that's going on? And what are the prospects for them to reroute refined product exports and VGO and Resid exports to places other than Europe and the U.S. This is uh, this is a great question, and this is very tough because what we know about the uh, uh, Russian refining that, uh, and this is my fear basically, is two things. Uh, the first one is some spare parts they need on regular basis uh, are from Europe, and they need them. And what will happen here? I don't know. So we might see some breakdowns of some refineries simply because of lack of spare parts. Uh, that's number one. The uh, other one is, uh, notice the following, that despite everything we've seen from uh, uh, Russia, attacks, bombing, et cetera, et cetera, in Ukraine, and how angry Putin is at some uh, uh, members that want to join, join NATO, he already cut oil exports to uh, Finland, he cut natural gas exports to Finland, Poland, Bulgaria, etc. But something we were expecting did not happen, which is the cyber attacks. And that's very strange. But when you dig deeper and you talk to experts, you find out that the CIA and the U.S. done uh, an amazing job in cutting off Russia out of all the servers around the world. So there were a tremendous number of attacks in the last uh, eight weeks or so but none of them basically was successful simply because they don't have access to those uh, centers. I think that 
as the, the dust settles in the next few weeks, we might see the, the exactly the opposite. The opposite, basically, we'll see some European countries, some NATO members, basically, doing cyber attacks in the opposite direction by turning off those centers, whatever they disconnected from Russia, turning them suddenly for a short period of time, making some attacks. And I can assure you that one of the main attacks is going to be on refineries. Uh, so regardless of what's on the ground, these are the two main threats, basically the spare parts and cyber attacks on this. The other issue is related to the sales of those products. Uh, the, uh, the, domestically, they have no problem. Uh, internationally, they can use the same routes. They are exporting that oil, but uh, the impact of sanctions on the products could be higher uh, than, uh, than oil in this case. Back to you, George. Thank you. Uh, I have a final comment, if you don't mind, George, if yeah, this is I, the last question. Yeah, I have one question for you before your comment. Go ahead. Can you briefly speak on the refining situation in the U.S. and what's going on with crack spreads and diesel prices? I mean, I know you're in the States. I don't know if you're all right this minute, but I know you, you, you live in the States. So you're seeing diesel prices now, I don't know, $6.75 or whatever. Can you just explain to the room what is going on with diesel and what is the outlook for diesel in particular? Well, generally speaking, uh, the the uh, the amount of oil of crude oil going into refineries have not recovered. Uh, we wanted to go back to uh, 17, 18 million uh, barrels a day. We, we are still between like around 16 or so. So we are not seeing a major increase in that. So that's the only way we can solve this problem. And we cannot import much because it is a global uh, disaster. And uh, we have several reasons for this, of course, uh, just like the uh, natural gas problem in Europe, they let the inventories down. They did not pay attention at the beginning. And then when the crisis hit, you cannot replenish. Uh, we ended up uh, almost with the same problem while the economy is recovering. And the, really, I mean, if you look at the economy, what is the main thing in the economy? Well, the, the backbone of the economy is trucking. And what uh, the trucks run on diesel. So we have this recovery and we don't have enough diesel and refineries are not doing much. At the same time, I would like to add one more point for those who are not familiar with the oil industry. Don't worry about it. Uh, all the increase, and this is probably what's prompted the uh, SPR release, all the increase in shale production since the recovery after COVID until now is condensates. It's not even crude. It's condensates. And you cannot produce diesel from condensates, at least economically. So we have problem with the slate of the amount increased uh, in the United States. And uh, it is very tough to solve this problem at this stage. Like the gentleman who talked about the recession, if we end up with a recession, that's going to solve uh, uh, the problem almost on the spot. If we don't end up with a recession, we are going to suffer for a while. And uh, I think the Biden administration should seriously consider studying those refineries and find out exactly what environmental laws that need to be relaxed so they can help those refineries produce more uh, diesel. I know it could be politically unacceptable uh, by, the, by some Democrats, uh, but that's the only way they can solve the problem before the election. Uh, otherwise, 
uh, we are going to have this problem for uh, a long period. Thank you, Dr. Ahaji. Um, any final comments? Otherwise, again, I thank you on behalf of the entire room. Uh, yes, uh, basically uh, 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 two comments uh, quickly. The first one is on China. China been building the strategic petroleum reserves during the lockdown. And uh, this is another argument about the uh, bullish, bullishness uh, in the coming months that uh, now they are reopening. Is that bullish or not? Well, in theory, it is. But it depends on whether they are going to buy extra oil to meet the new demand or whether they are going to use the strategic petroleum reserve that's been built in the last six, eight weeks to compensate. Uh, they are going to use the SPR. No, it's not bullish. If they are going to buy and keep that SPR, it is, it is bullish. Uh, the other thing is uh, China is playing a game uh, that uh, people should know about. From the beginning, China realized that it's uh, government-owned companies that have uh, their stocks traded in the major exchanges in Europe and the United States could be subject to sanctions and punishment if they deal with Russian oil. So what the, what the Chinese government did is they looked at the uh, independent refiners and the teapot refineries and told them, look, we are going to take all your storage, all your inventories, and give it to the government-owned companies. Of course, I mean, for, for the, they paid them the right price. It's not like they confiscated that. They just transferred the ownership, and then they told the teapot refineries, you go and get that Russian oil because you have no assets anywhere in the world and no one can punish you. So they are able to import large amount and neither the U.S. nor the uh, Europeans can do anything about it because the import, the Chinese importers do not exist anywhere in the world except in uh, China. The final point, and this is the bullish point, and I kept uh, the best for last, that you, you, you George, are, uh, you are uh, bullish on oil in the long run. I'm going to give you another reason to all the reasons I mentioned earlier. All those outlooks that we talked about, including the outlooks by the oil majors, ignore the reaction of the oil-producing countries to all the hype of climate change policies and carbon-neutral policies and ESG. And what those governments are doing, again, I, I studied their behavior, I converted that to animal behavior, but I'm going to focus only on one. Uh, I'm not going to go over the others. But one of them is the fox behavior. The fox behavior, what those, what those countries are doing right now as we speak, they are saying, look, you don't want my crude oil because you want to go for electric vehicles? Go for it. And I'm happy that you are going for it. But I will make sure that the body of that car is made from my oil. I'm going to export that oil embedded in something else. You want to build those uh, uh, power plants that depend on wind power, and you are going to build those big towers and blades and turbines, et cetera, turbines, et cetera. I'm going to make sure that those blades are made from my oil and gas. So I'm going to export it to you embedded in something else. The problem is we already established from the beginning of the presentation that those green policies are going to fail, but those, gov those governments are working on those policies. So by the time we find out we have an oil shortage and we need that oil, that oil is already being converted to something else, and we are not going to find it. And the only way you can get it, if you pay them a price that compensates for all the profit they make from the materials they are making. 
I'm sure you'll be happy with this idea. <laughs> Unbelievable. Dr. Ahaji, you've been so helpful. I hope you'll consider coming back again. I Thank know you're you. regularly in these rooms. We're going to keep the room going, but um, I think that's it for, for now. Thank you. Again, Thank a big you. round of applause for Dr. Ahaji. We'll see you again soon. Thank you so much. Thank you very and much. Every, every, everyone, please follow Dr. Uh, Dr. Ahaji. Thank okay. you. That's great. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, we'll keep the room going for a few more minutes. Um, I don't want to take too long. It's a nice day outside. But if anyone has anything else I'd like to follow up on, uh, Jeffrey, here we go. My good friend, Jeffrey, here we are. Jeffrey, how are you? What's yes, up? Yes. Hey, hey, thanks, guys. Thank Dr. Naj. I'm just curious. Um, we, we talk about uh, energy security, but I think we also need to talk about uh, food shortages, food security as well. How much input costs? for for the 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 food um uh, companies that are out there is, is natural gas and oil like fertilizer depends heavily on natural gas yeah. i'm just curious yep yeah no it's jeffrey it's a huge problem i mean it's pretty been pretty well discussed and it's why you know the fertilizer stocks are doing so well and 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 the food stocks and you know you're right you're right on something and that's a it's a huge, huge, huge problem. And in particular, you look now in the emerging market countries where you look at the proportion of the typical uh, consumption basket that's accounted for by food or energy. In some places, it's as much as 50 or 60%, whereas in the more developed countries, it might only be 10 or 20%. So, no, it's a great issue that you raise. It's going to be the source, I believe, of increasing geopolitical uncertainty and turmoil. We've seen this happen before. We had the tortilla riots back in 2008, I believe it was. And the roots of the Arab Spring are actually born out of uh, rising food costs. So, no, you you you've identified a, you've identified a, a very important issue. It's it's a well known problem. Thanks for that, Jeffrey. Carpathia, good to see you, my friend. What's up, Carpathia? Hey, I just uh, it's not a question. I just want to you know, Carol had mentioned the fires out here. I turn on my spaces, listen to this, and then I hear her mention that. I want to thank everybody on this call that, you know, contributed to the kitchen and they're here west of uh, Santa Fe and we've got every heavy lift helicopter. It's just unimaginable. We've had a property here for 22 years. There's uh, a part of the country. This is like not really discovered. A few people have discovered it, the CEO of Kinder Morgan and Aflac, but these, we need uh, I want to thank all of y'all for, you know, supporting that organization. And uh, I've been kind of out of it with the markets because this is a beast. We need your support and uh, thoughts and prayers. And that's all, George. Thank you so much. Hey, hey, Carpathia, could you just explain a little bit more detail what is going on in your neck of the woods? Because I'm not sure everybody is following the story. Well, it, it, it was, there was an article in the Times. I didn't read it. Um, real quick. In its infamous, um, and again, some of this is conjecture. The Forest Service decided they were going to have a controlled burn about 45 miles south of here. I'm in the Moreno Valley. I'm about two hours from Santa Fe to the northeast. Pretty big mountains. It's basically Colorado, but people don't realize New Mexico has, a, you know, this section of the southern Rockies. So they started this beast. It got away from them. The locals, the rumor is the local workers were we don't really want to do this and they were overruled and it got away from them. it's been going on six weeks it's over three hundred and ten thousand acres and we're pretty dry the winds won't die down 
We've got four uh, type one teams on the job, three type one teams, close to 3,000 hot shots. And they can't they can't tame this beast because it's getting into the into the um, Pecos wilderness, but um, it's just devouring, you know, century old communities and, uh, you know, a quick study of Northeast New Mexico, the Spanish were here before us. And I've got friends and family with properties that have, you know, owned them for 200 years, you know, before the Santa Fe trail came in and came right over these mountains and into Santa Fe. But anyway, it's a huge fire. They guys, you know, they're building bulldozers lines. So it's, I don't want, I could talk for hours about it, but a big chunk of the most beautiful undiscovered forests are going up in flames. They're discovered, but they're just hard to get to. You fly from New York or something, you got to go to Albuquerque. It's hard to get to. So we have tremendous elk herds, tremendous wildlife. Anyway, so we, we need these guys to come through and put a stop to this. But unfortunately, I think it's going to take Mother Nature. So that's what's going on. Um, anyway, if anyone has any questions, I can answer them. That's great. Why don't you stay up on stage? Uh, it's, it's uh, wow, what a, what a situation. Hey, Joseph, you want to meet yourself? You try to Joseph, Sorry about that, George. I was laying in the sun and I couldn't see the screen enough to hit the speaker. But, uh, I heard Dr. Anas, I've been listening quite some time, uh, allude to his best investment now would be natural gas. And with it such a clean burn and it, sitting at around $8, I kind of feel the same way. Uh, any ideas as to, you know, wh wh where is, you would invest at this moment? Yeah, um, I see some of my... Uh... Joseph, please please meet yourself here because we're getting feedback. Um, I, I see some of my Canadian oil mafia friends. I'm going to pick on an oil guy to come up if he wants to, or uh, Razor, or I'm just going down here. There are a lot of uh, Canadian oil mafia guys in the room. Um, the Canadian oil guys are generally better placed than um, the American ones. Uh, as you know, it varies enormously. Mostly in Canada, heretofore, people have focused on the oily companies. But there are a bunch that are more gassy. Um, I've constantly I've been viewing, you know, it's, you know Canada is like the the Saudi Arabia of natural gas. They're going to be they've got a project underway on the west coast up in British Columbia to increase their uh, LNG capacity. It's going to take a few years to get together, but they've got endless resources. Uh, so it's really a great longer term story. Um, you know, heretofore oil's been the focus, so most have focused on the oily names, but. We have the uh, well-spoken, ever-observant uh, uh, oil god, and I think with us now, and he's perhaps better placed to answer your question. Oil god, my friend, good to see you. Um, could you help Joseph out with this question? Absolutely. Good morning, George, Dr. Nass, and all of our friends here in the Canadian Oil Mafia. Fantastic space. I'm looking forward to listening to the recording. Um, Dr. Nass and, and George, I both have comments for you, but uh, with, the, with the gentleman with respect to natural gas, obviously the Canadian Oil Mafia would think it's Canada, which is the home uh, that seems the best fit for investors' capital for so many reasons. Um, but largely what we're about to see is low decline rates, uh, security for your energy resource, which, you know, I can argue that 
Canada seems to be, if you, you look at a map of the world, the only place where I just don't think we can be attacked unless it's politically uh, tomorrow morning, uh, whereas I cannot actually say that about too many other places in the world. I'm going to highlight two names. I'm not going to get too much into them, but I'm going to encourage you to follow somebody that I know George and Dr. Anas both uh, know and respect, and that's our, our good friend in the com, Shabam Gog of White Tundra Investments. If you, if you do look at, at White Tundra Investments, uh, you can go to his website. Um, the gentleman posts absolutely phenomenal work, details, not just fluff pie in the sky things like this ESG stuff. Um, you know, and he'll give you a couple of names and, and two that, uh, and I'm only going to highlight because I personally own them and they're not a recommendation, of Vermilion Energy, which is in Europe and will benefit from if Russian natural gas gets um, let's just say uh, a little bit less prevalent in that part of the woods. And I am actually with Dr. Nas. I don't believe it's going to be as less prevalent as everybody is anticipating just for just the natural world order and, uh, you know, the reliance of obviously countries uh, decline, perhaps, uh, you know, an absolute get out of Russia. I just, you know, I don't even think it's feasible. Uh, that would be Vermilion Energy on a larger size uh, and in a very smaller size. And this is a company that we've now it's a calm had the pleasure of listening to the CEO now for the second time. Uh, it's a company called Pine Cliff Energy, and they own uh, an asset uh, that is fantastic. They do not rely on any banking debt. Uh, They're going to be completely uh, debt-free, and they also have a little thing that is incre incredibly, incredibly more valuable by the day, and it's called a pipeline. And it actually resides north in Canada, and it goes south to the United States. I'm going to leave you salivating with that. Um, George, a comment for you. I just want to say, uh, since the day we've met, you've grown to, to produce some of the most fantastic spaces. And aside from myself, you have the best speakers I've ever heard. Uh, and, and the fact that you're able to draw Dr. Anasin on a weekend when he should be at the beach working on his tan is so impressive. Uh, so thank you um, very much for doing all of this. When you said that the we all need to you know, this, this message needs to be disseminated. You do have some pull. I see the people on the CNBCs that follow you, that listen to you, that respect you. This ESG narrative needs to be challenged because the metaphor that Dr. Anas uses of the fox, it is so, I, I mean, I don't even need to look at you, but I could see your heart just drop when you hear the fox and the analogy of, oh, you want wind turbines. Oh, you want solar panels, do you? Well, here's some oil-stuffed solar panels and oil-reliant wind turbines. And it's oh so blatantly obvious that I believe that, you know, we need to start with the people that reach the most people outside of Twitter. Uh, and that would ultimately hold people accountable who are the decision makers. Um, Dr. Anas, I want to thank you for your work. I think it's, it's just absolutely brilliant as always. And my question to you would be, um, or not a question, it's more of a comment, but you'd mentioned that uh, the hedges, and this time is different, perhaps, with obviously hedges coming off of stocks. How do you feel about the fact that lots of these companies have little to no debt today and how that would affect their prices in a rising rate market? Because the way I look at ESG is that these people kind of like George knows that are trying to double down, triple down, quadruple down on tech stocks, they're getting hit in the head with a rising cost of borrowing and capital, which is just not just bad for valuations, but bad for people speculating on obviously over expensive companies that didn't produce free cash flow. So in the case of 
oil companies. If you have less debt and you're able to return that free cash flow sooner and more quicker with a commodity that's more valuable and now more scarce, I'd like to argue that that would also make this time different. Um, and I'd just love to comment you, you, you to maybe comment on that dynamic versus what, if we've ever seen that in the past with respect to the space. And again, thank you both. I, I'm hugging my screen. Thank you very much uh, for the kind words and for the question. Yes, you are right. It's different. And companies might, uh, as you know, many of them are naked right now and they, they don't want even to hedge at all in any way. The problem is, uh, and as you recall, we discussed this in a couple of spaces before, uh, after what happened on March 6 and 7, 2020, during the dispute between Saudi Arabia and Russia and the market crashed on Monday uh, that week. Uh, we have board members literally of even Canadian oil companies saying never again, never again for them meant that I'm not going to be subject to this again. So I'm going to assume that what the Saudis did is going to happen at any time. So yes, everything you mentioned is absolutely correct. But if board members are thinking seriously about that what the Saudis did can happen again, then that behavior is going to have some uh, reservations in a sense. Yes, I don't have debt. Yes, I don't have to pay. But what if the market crashed? Back to yeah. you, George. Yeah, so one more follow-up, if I can, George, just to Dr. Nasta. So we have now rising rates. We have obviously insane inflation. And do we have any idea aside from i mean let's let's just call a spade a spade a summer ago when we were all kind of getting to know one another we were all talking about what life would be like around this time right we all recall these conversations about you know boy life is going to get pretty expensive for people in certain parts of the world we're now seeing desperation we're now seeing countries where they've run out of petrol. We're seeing politicians getting the vehicles pushed into rivers or, you know, people getting, you know, we, we, we know the devastation is not only there, it's going to continue to get worse. How do you expect that to affect the will of the ESG movement, just given how much more bad money is needed to chase a good narrative that doesn't necessarily have an efficient solution? Um. The issue here is, if you believe that ESG movement and uh, all the people who support it, if you believe that this is a religion, they are willing to let other people die, and probably they are willing to kill themselves too. So I don't think the narrative is going to change quickly. And as we discussed uh, uh, in details in all of the spaces, those guys are focused on schools, and they are focused on universities, and they spent a lot of money and uh, teachers basically are teaching kids uh, all the all the bad issues and all the bad things about oil and gas. So if we are not going to go back that route and start with the education system itself, I think it's a religion and it's very hard to get rid of. Back to you, George. Thanks. And oil guy, thank you so much for that question. It was a fantastic question. Okay, listen, it's uh, it's we've been going at it for two hours and twenty minutes. This has been an unbelievably uh, productive space. Dr. Ahaji, I hope to come back again. Always great to hear you in, in these spaces. It's fantastic. And your your message needs to get out. And, uh, you know, it will be heard by a whole bunch of folks here in Oil God. Yes, I'm trying to get a bigger uh, platform to be heard myself because I just, I'm just morally outraged. And as a, as a, it's all the nonsense that's going on in so many areas, and we've talked about that. So listen, I want to thank everyone for this room. I want to thank you for all your questions. It's been phenomenal. 
the replay will be out. Um, it'll be up shortly, and we'll have it out on uh, Apple, Spotify, YouTube, hopefully tonight or tomorrow. It's been a great room. And onward and upward, Dr. Aji, thanks again. Uh, look forward to seeing all of you real soon. Thanks, everybody. Have a great day. Take care. Bye-bye.